Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Death and taxes, two things that are said to be absolutes. Death is too depressing, so we are going to be talking about taxes today. Hmm, that could be depressing as well. But my guests today have written an interesting book about taxes through the ages, and they take us back to 2300 BCE to the ancient Sumerians and their tax schemes through Cleopatra and hers, and of course the tax collectors like Vlad the Impaler and the punishment he meted out for not paying. If you get the idea that these two gentlemen use humor to explain a serious topic, you were right. The two men are Michael Keane and Joel Slemrod. Their new book is Rebellion, Rascals, and Revenue, Tax Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages. Michael Keane is Deputy Director of the Fiscal Affairs Department at the International Monetary Fund. Joel Slemrod is Professor of Economics at the University of Michigan, where he is also Paul W. McCracken Collegiate Professor at the Ross School of Business. Both have been awarded the National Tax Association's Daniel M. Holland Medal, Medal for Distinguished Lifetime Contributions to the Study and Practice of Public Finance, and both are past presidents of the International Institute of Public Finance. I am very pleased to welcome Joel Slemrod and Michael Keane to Politics, a Love Story. Okay, uh, take it away, gentlemen. Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks, thanks very much for, for having us. So, um, yeah, so you mentioned um, the book, and um, Joel and I have both been working sort of fairly seriously on taxes for 30-odd years or so. And over those years, we've swapped all kinds of weird and interesting stories that we've come across in the tax world from past and present. And eventually we had so many of these that um, our partner suggested, well, why did you actually write a book about these? So um, that was my partner, Geraldine's suggestion, and we, we took it up. That's what the book is. But we think it's um, more than a collection of bizarre stories about taxation. I'm sure we'll have a chance to tell some of them. What we try to do is really use the past to, to gently illustrate some basic ideas of what are good, good things and bad things to do in terms of, in terms of taxation. And, try, and so try to help people think about tax policy issues that they might read about in newspapers today. Because I think both of us feel that our profession, the kind of boring tax analysts like us, really haven't done a very good job of explaining to non-specialists what is important um, in thinking about taxes, what the lessons are from the past. So that's what we try to do. So we're trying to, to entertain but also in a, in a relatively painless way, we hope, teach some basic tax principles. So there are plenty of fun stories along the way. Maybe we should start with, um, with some of those. And um, Joel has uh, several of those up his sleeve, I'm sure. <laughs> well, yeah. let, um, go ahead, Bob. Let me just say, uh, let's, let's point out what actually a tax is, as you point out in your book. A tax is a compulsory, unrequited payment to general government. That's what taxes are at first blush. But as you point out later on, that's not only where taxes lie. So uh, tell us a story, please. Sure. Um, one of uh, the themes of the book is that even though we talk about taxes from hundreds of years ago, even thousands of years ago, the central challenges of taxation haven't much changed over the millennia. And so even in talking about taxes from a while ago in a different country with, in a different environment, you see some of the same issues. 
Um, and the issues debated today can sometimes be obscured amidst the politics and the rhetorics surrounding the current tax debates. And so sometimes we think by taking the issue away from the current context, the key principles are even clearer. So stories. So let me start with one, um, and that is illustrating the point that although usually taxes are designed to raise revenue, that's their point, sometimes taxes are there not really mainly to raise revenue, but to change the behavior of people or businesses. And so one story about that goes back to 1698 in Russia, when the emperor of the time, Peter the Great, was trying to westernize Russia and make it more like the other Western powers, England and France. And he had many, many initiatives to do that. But one thing he noticed is that the uh, some of the nobles in Russia, known as boyars, had these long beards. And that wasn't the style among the nobles in England and France. And so what did he do? Well, he thought about just abolishing, making it illegal to have a beard. But he ended up with putting a tax on beards. In particular, if you were a noble and you were out in public, you had to either have shaved your beard, or if you kept it, you had to have paid a tax, in, which, in return to which you got a token, which said on one side, I have paid my beard tax with this lovely uh, drawing of a beard. And there it was. The other side, by the way, said the beard is a superfluous burden. What's the lesson? The lesson is sometimes the objective of the tax is to change behavior. The beard tax in Russia is not particularly nefarious or horrible. There are other more nefarious and horrible examples of taxes designed to change behavior, including taxes on believers and disfavored religions or taxes on newspaper and newsprint to try to get the dissenting newspapers out of business, and more recently, taxing smoking. But for a good purpose, the big example these days is taxes on polluting activities, such as carbon taxes, which many economists favor, not because they would raise revenue, although it would, but because it would induce businesses and people to consider the social costs of their behavior when they use the products of fossil fuels. But there's a big push from uh, the extraction industries. Uh, first of all, companies like uh, ExxonMobil have for years stated there is no climate change, and yet back in some of their uh, notes, uh, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, they were worried about what would happen with climate change. So they spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, against this. Do you think a carbon tax would actually get passed in Congress? Well, uh, I don't see any uh, near-term uh, possibility of that. The Biden administration has proposed several uh, major changes in the tax system, and a carbon tax is not one of the one of the uh, things he proposed. So I don't see it in the near term, and that's even and in the with the fact that he has many other proposals which would try to address climate change. So I know I don't see that uh, in the near horizon, but uh, I don't think the idea is going away because it is one of the better ways to think about 
addressing climate change. One question. Yeah, could, could I maybe I could quickly add something? Sure. Bob, as, a, as a kind of um, uh, a neutral Brit in this conversation, which is that um, one of the interesting things about the carbon tax debate in the U.S. is it really unites economists across the political spectrum, as far as I can see. There are, there are Democrats who support it and there are Republicans who support it because um, Republicans generally believe in free markets, but they know that sometimes free markets need a bit of a nudge and that the carbon tax is a kind of an efficient way of doing it because um, it means that, you know, just as Peter the Great's beard tax meant that um, it was the people who valued their beards less who shaved them off. So a carbon tax means that it's businesses and people who can reduce their carbon emissions most easily who will cut them back. So so <clears throat> without getting into the politics, I think it's, it's interesting that that is, a, um, amongst economists at least, it's a carbon tax or some form of carbon pricing is pretty widely uh, acknowledged to be an important way forward, I think. One question I had about um, where you got all this uh, information from. So uh, I wonder, were records kept uh, hundreds and thousands of years ago so that you could figure out what was going on and what the gross national product was of certain countries along the way? Well, uh, we, we got our information uh, from all kinds of sources. Um, sometimes the evidence is scattered, but other times there's uh, amazingly uh, more evidence than you would expect. We talk in the book about a tax on windows <laughs> that England had for over 100 years, and um, we, we uh, noticed that one of the responses of people in England was to brick up their windows of their houses and to lower their tax burden. How do we know about that? Good question. This is, you know, hundreds of years ago. Well, first of all, there are still houses in the UK where you can see clearly that there was a window and it's now bricked up. Um, so that's evidence. But even better is some of the municipalities in England kept meticulous records about the, what the tax inspectors counted as the number of windows in houses and how much tax people owed. And scholars have gone back to investigate these records and learn some fascinating things about how people respond to taxes, which obviously is still a big issue today. Yeah. There's a, and you pointed out, and I guess this would be a good time to, uh, to make this uh, clear. You point out that there's a big difference between uh, adhering to the letter of the law and doing tax uh, avoidance, and then there's going over the line and committing tax evasion. Could you get into that a bit? Yeah, I mean, I could right? say, yeah, yeah you're, you're right. There is, in principle, a kind of a clear distinction between things that are illegal and things that, uh, that are, are, are maybe shady but are not actually illegal. I think in, uh, it's an important distinction, um, but it's quite a it can be a gray line uh, sometimes. I think a former British Chancellor of the Exchequer said the difference between evasion, which is illegal, and avoidance, which is legal. He said the difference had the thickness of a, of a prison cell wall, <laughs> meaning that um, you know it's a kind of um, it's a bit of a gray line there. And you know a lot of court cases are, are really about whether particular tax planning devices are actually or are not. Um, you know, permitted under under the available rules. So it is a it, it, there is in principle a clear distinction, but it um, often in practice becomes somewhat blurred. And I think sometimes it gets 
blurred if people are not very careful about the, the labels they use. So sometimes we, you know, people talk these days sometimes about um, illicit um, transactions of various kinds. And, and illicit as, as a word kind of mingles things that are legal and things that are illegal. So although it's a, it's a gray, it is a very, in practice, becomes quite a, a gray area quite often. Um, you're right, there is in principle a, a, an important distinction that, um, that we have to think about quite carefully. So uh, there must be certain things that you would like people to know about from your book. So would it be the weird taxes that were put in place over the years, um, the taxes that were good, the taxes that were bad? Uh, what are some of the things you would like to leave us with? I think one of the things we would like to leave our readers with is that the, uh, the trade-offs that any government must face taxation have been around for centuries, if not millennia. And sometimes it's easier to see them uh, when we talk about kind of crazy or weird taxes of the past. So let me give an example um, related to what we were just talking about, the uh, avoidance and evasion. We try in our book to make taxation and the principles vivid and, and uh, fascinating. And so we have lots of pictures um, that illustrate these uh, tax episodes from the past. But it turns out that evasion, for evasion, there are not many great images around. Sort of, if you think about it, that's maybe obvious why. People who are doing the tax evading are trying to stay invisible. And <laughs> uh, so there aren't like pictures of tax evaders doing tax evasion other than maybe some people in handcuffs walking to, uh, to uh, prison. But what there are great pictures of and great images are, are attacks avoidance. So these are things that are legal uh, that people do to reduce their tax liability. So great pictures are the bricked up windows in, uh, of uh, buildings built during the era in England when there was a window tax. Uh, ships that were built <laughs> during an era when the tax on the ship depended on the area of the deck. And so ships became, started to have narrower decks and wider bows, which was uh, seaworthy and tax minimizing. When the British put a tax on glass based on weight, glass, uh, there were designed these very thin glasses with hollow stems a way to have a glass that doesn't weigh much. These are now called excise glasses. Hmm. And my last example is when instead the uh, countries in Europe had a tax not on weight of cigarettes and cigars, but by unit. So each cigarette and each cigar had a tax liability. What happened was manufacturers uh, made these very, very big cigars, um, knowing that people weren't going to smoke them like that, but rather they were going to chop them up, take out the tobacco, and roll them into cigarettes. So the point is that there are always clever uh, people looking for ways to minimize their tax burden, and it's really clear in ships and glasses and cigars. One of the things you pointed out was that if a tax is reasonable and people see the benefit of that tax, there'll be less attempts to uh, evade those taxes, and uh, they know that it is for the public good that these taxes were enacted. 
but then there are those that are so onerous that, of course, people are going to try to evade them. Yeah, I think that's right. I think another kind of um, lesson from the past tax revolts and rebellions um, that, that we look at, and you know, people have written whole books listing these things, Another lesson, I think, is also that how taxes are imposed can, can matter quite a lot as well, that um, how the tax is imposed and also, in general, what the other political circumstances are, political social circumstances are at the time. That, um, you know, I think, for example, of, um, in the UK, we had a, uh, an episode under Mrs. Thatcher in 1990 when she introduced a, a poll tax, which is a, basically a, a poll tax is one that is in a fixed amount for everybody, independent of their circumstances. And that resulted in um, the most massive tax resistance, really, I think, that the UK or England had seen since a previous poll tax, by the way, 600 years before. But it was, um, and eventually it led to the demise, or one of the factors leading to the demise of Mrs. Thatcher in the end of her premiership. But it was also, in the circumstance at the time, there was a lot else going on. There was the whole Mrs. Thatcher's privatization agenda, rolling back the, the, the position of the state, um, taking on some of the trade unions. So... Tax is often the trigger that, that causes revolt, rather necessarily the uh, the thing that um, on its own causes the causes the, um, up the, the disturbances. It's like it's that that's the straw that broke the camel's back. Basically, yes, and it had been the same, really, as I say, in England six hundred years before, when we had a, a, a similar poll tax that actually led to the most to what's called the Peasants' Revolt, which was the closest England ever came really to a complete bloody uh, overturn of the social order. But again, that was prompted or came at a time where there were lots of other things going on. Um, the, there was a war with France was going very badly. Um, there'd been the, the Black Death, had actually strengthened the position of workers, but the legal system was trying to put them back in their place, as it were. So there was a whole load of other things going on at the same time. And also, as I say, the whole thing was made more unpalatable by um, some of the techniques of tax collection that were being used. So it turned out, for example, that asking tax inspectors to check whether women are 16 years old or, or under is not a great idea. So it's, um, tax revolts are, are common. As I say, there are whole books about them. But there's usually something else going on. And we see that even today when we have the recent disturbances in France, for example, uh, which were tax-related, but there was clearly much more going on than, than just tax. And, of course, there are uh, a large number of uh, odd taxes that you point out in your book, and one of them was a breast tax in India, uh, that there was some sort of a revolt by one woman, and then they took away that tax. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, this is one of the um, uh, weird tax episodes where you can read about it some places and then other places where you would think it would be mentioned. It isn't mentioned, so we're not 100% sure that all the details that we've read about are true, but this is a, a tax in when the British uh, ruled in India that um, was uh, pretty clearly there to humiliate women of lower castes. And there was one woman who found uh, the tax uh, on uh, covering her breasts to be a horrible injustice. And the story goes that in protest, she sliced her breast off and died. And um, the story continues that as uh, in light of this protest, the tax was changed. Uh, and there are in the book other examples of 
people who went out of their way to uh, protest the um, injustices they saw related to tax. We tell the story of how in the modern suffragette movement in the 19th and 20th century, um, many suffragette women uh, uh, said that until they had the vote, they would not pay tax. And um, in fact, the logo of the British, one of the major British suffragette organizations was uh, no vote, no tax. Well, that brings me to another interesting story from the book, uh, and that is that things are not quite how they often come to be seen when it comes to taxation. Myth is often more pervasive than reality. The Boston Tea Party was actually prompted by not some tax increase, but a tax cut. And the most appalling British tax oppression in the story did not occur in the American colonies. It took place in India. We have this yep. whole big myth that is not true. That's, that's right. Um, yeah, so it's, um, it's a sort of a great story of early geopolitics of taxation, really. So we're, we're in the late 18th, uh, uh, come up to the late 18th century, um, later part of the 18th century. So we, there was the uh, East India Company that many people may have heard of, which at the time was really the Google, Facebook, um, giant corporations all rolled into one, which um, at one point was doing very well because they just acquired a lot of um, revenue powers in India. Um, things were looking good for the East India Company, but um, things started to go wrong with a, a famine in India and resistance in, the, in the, the then colonies to the tax that was imposed on tea when it arrived in the colonies. So the East India Company found itself in trouble. Uh, they were getting less revenue from India than they'd hoped, and so they were doing some pretty appalling things to keep their revenue going in India. At the same time, they had trouble tell, selling tea, partly because of the uh, American boycotts and resistance. So essentially what happened was there was some bright spark in London had a great way of trying to solve the problems of the East India Company while maintaining the tax on tea in the colonies. And the British wanted to maintain the tax on tea when it arrived in the colonies, not really for revenue, but to show that if they wanted to tax the colonies in that way, they could. But the, the bright spark in London noticed that before the tea was shipped um, to the colonies from London, it actually paid an import duty in London. So the tea comes to London, pays an import duty, then gets shipped to the colonies. So the brilliant idea was, well, why don't we remove the tax that the tea pays in London? Leave the one on the, uh, that's um, paid when it arrives in the colonies unchanged. What's going to happen? Well, clearly the price of tea is going to go down. More tea is going to be sold because we're reducing the price of tea in the colonies. But the great thing is we're not conceding the principle by reducing the tax on tea when it arrives in the colonies. So this is a pretty brilliant idea for resolving the problems of the East India Company. Um, sell more tea, maintain the tax in the colonies. So what could possibly go wrong, you might <laughs> ask? Well, what did go wrong pretty badly was that by cutting the price of tea, we were going to be undercutting some of the most influential people in Boston and, and elsewhere who happened to be smugglers. And the name John Hancock's often mentioned. So what we were doing was we were taking on, we here referring to myself as a Brit, we were taking on one of the most powerful lobbyists in, in the colonies by essentially undercutting the smugglers. And it was really that that, um, that prompted um, the, Boston, the Boston Tea Party and the resistance. So as you say, it was really a tax cut, 
not any tax increase that prompted the, the Boston Tea Party. Things are a little bit more complicated than, than I've let, like, described, but nonetheless, that's the essence of the thing. It was really a tax cut, not a tax increase that, uh, that um, prompted the problem and, as you say, gave rise to a long-lasting and hugely influential myth. Uh, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, a Love Story. Our guests today are Michael Keane and Joel Slemrod, and their book is Rebellion, Rascals, and Revenue. Tax Folly, talk, excuse me a second here, Tax Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages. Now, um, there were a number of phrases uh, that I had never heard before, and you went quite a distance to explain what they meant. Uh, tax incidence is one, one phrase I had never heard before, and it's really the question of who, who really bears the burden of taxation. Governments often seem to intend that the impact of a tax fall on some political group. Have I got that right? Well, you certainly have got it right that um, an important concept in taxation is to understand who ends up bearing the burden of a tax. And one of the clear lessons of the economics of taxation and that we try to get across in our book is that you cannot learn the answer to that question by reading the name of the tax. The <laughs> name of the tax just might not get it right. Um and we have examples from history where this is pretty clear. Um, one is, again, back in England centuries ago, a tax on, uh, on uh, mostly rich folks who had female servants. And I think the idea was that this would be a tax that would be borne by these relatively wealthy people. But in the end, um, it seems like what happened was a lot of female servants were let go because of this tax. And so these were the people who bore uh, some of or much of the tax burden. Fast forward to just a few decades ago here in the U.S., um, there was a tax on yachts and other uh, high-priced cars and things like that. But the idea, again, was that a tax on yachts uh, would be borne mostly by those people rich enough to buy yachts. But it turns out it seems anyway, that at least some of the burden was borne by the people who make the yachts, who sell the yachts, not particularly well-off people. And this question, who actually ultimately bears the burden of the tax, is what economists call incidence, and is actually very important for understanding the real consequences of taxation. One example, maybe... Um, that uh, Mick uh, would like to talk about more is uh, the idea of a tax on financial transactions. Do you want to try that one, Mick? Sure, yeah. Well, I think, um, I think that a general point is that um, people with some interest or, or other to, to pursue um, tend to think of names for taxes that, pre, that try to prejudge where the incidents will fall, the kind of the real, where the real burden will fall, in a way that favors their preferred cause. So, one example that Joel's hinting at is something called a financial transactions tax, which is a, a very small tax on a wide range of financial transactions. And this is some people sort of describe this tax as being a Robin Hood tax in the sense, presumably, that they expect the real incidence, the real burden of the tax to fall on wealthy bankers, uh, overpaid people in the financial sector. 
But there's no reason to think that would be the case. It may equally well be, probably even more plausibly, the real burden uh, in the form of reduced returns would fall on the people undertaking the financial transactions themselves. So, again, to Joel's point, figuring out where the incidence, the real burden of the tax lies, is not always easy, but we should at least be aware that when people label taxes in, in ways that, uh, that sound catchy, they're often doing it in a way that is deliberately manipulative to pursue their, um, pursue their cause. And um, maybe I'll hand back to Joel for one example of that, which is the, the notion of the, the death tax in the U.S. Yeah, this was just, uh, again, not that long ago in the Newt Gingrich era when um, Republicans in the U.S. Uh, decided that rather than refer to the U.S. estate and gift tax by its actual name, the estate and gift tax, they sort of pledged to always call it the death tax. Well, uh, of course, uh, it's not a tax on death. Most uh, people are not subject uh, to the tax. Only quite wealthy people are. So it's hardly a tax uh, on death. But it was a way to associate this tax with something that is even more unpleasant than, than taxes and might actually have been successful politically in uh, getting people to think less highly of it. Uh, but there are wonderful examples of how opponents of tax have tried to label taxes to make them seem less pleasing. In the, in the U.K., there was a uh, proposal that opponents came to call the dementia tax, <laughs> and there was another one uh, called the Bridget Jones tax. So, yeah, so our, the lesson is you have to look past the name of the tax often to understand what the tax is really about and who um, will bear the burden. And there's another cute little phrase from your book that I'd like to read. Don't tax you. Don't tax me. Tax the fellow behind the tree. But it's sometimes yeah. hard to know who it's going to. It's like shooting an arrow in the air where, it's, where it comes down. You have no idea. Well, um, I'm halfway with you on that. Often we don't know for sure um, who, what kinds of folks uh, will bear the burden of a tax. But it's not exactly shooting an arrow in the air because there are some principles that uh, apply that help us to understand who will bear the burden of a tax. For example, let me just try, uh, try the principle that the more there are a person has uh, better opportunities, uh, alternative opportunities for something that's taxed, the less they are likely to bear the burden. That's fairly intuitive if you think about it. Uh, consider a, um, a tax on um, a Coca-Cola, but not Pepsi-Cola. If most people are pretty much indifferent, they think they're pretty much one as good as the other, then it's really unlikely that a tax on Coca-Cola alone or Pepsi-Cola alone will be much of a burden to soda drinkers because they can easily switch to the untaxed alternative. So intuition like that actually can get us pretty far to having an idea of who will bear the burden. So it's not shooting an arrow in the air exactly because we sort of know which direction to look for. But you've cited a number of examples where a tax was enacted, and then there were all these unintended consequences, and they had to either modify or uh, take back that tax. Well, for sure, uh, there are unintended consequences all the time. 
And uh, one of the uh, lessons of the history of unintended consequences is to try to think about how to enforce a tax, especially a new tax, uh, before you implement it. Uh, people, as we've discussed today, will many people can be very creative and even ingenious in avoiding um, a tax or evading a tax. So it makes sense to have in mind how the tax agency is going to implement a tax uh, before you put it into place. So let me ask this question, bringing it into uh, the modern era. It's often stated, especially by Republicans, that lowering taxes on the wealthy will bring greater tax benefits overall to the government. There'll be more revenue than there was before. But this has hardly ever worked that way, including the 2017 tax cut. Uh, I had as a guest here uh, Douglas Holtz Eakin, the former head of the Congressional Budget Office during George W. Bush's, uh, one of his terms. And I asked him this question. And he said, well, I, I did a study uh, in our office And he said, uh, when you do reduce the taxes on the wealthiest, the government gets back between 30 and 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, Is your uh, research uh, proving or disproving that? Well, maybe I can Uh, start with a couple of... Yeah, um, go ahead, Mick. Let me just start with a couple of um, historical episodes and then maybe hand over to to Joel. So there are are cases where it's a pretty good bet that um, large tax cuts did actually more than pay for themselves. And the example we give in the book um, is, again, 18th century England, where we had a very high domestic... We're talking again about the tax on tea. Sorry, but you know how important (laughs) tea is to us English people. Um, There was a very high tax on tea in the 1740s and and a a huge smuggling, really on on an industrial scale, very violent, um, real kind of organized crime. Um, so there was a, an enterprising chance of the exchequer who massively reduced the tax on tea. And indeed, revenue did go up because of these, again, the smugglers being undercut. But there, are, there aren't that many examples where we can be sure that's what really happened. Another example people often point to that may relate to, to your question was actually in Russia, uh, which at the start of the century had a, introduced what's called a flat tax, which meant that the tax was essentially, tax rate was 30% on everybody. I think it still is. And that meant quite a large cut uh, from the people at the top of the income distribution because the previous top rate had been, I think it was 30. I can't remember if it was 20 or 30, but it was a big cut down to 13. And sure enough, revenue did go up um, a lot the the following year. And that became an example people pointed to a lot to say, look, you know, we've had this big tax cut at the top. Revenue's gone up. But certainly some of the work we've done looking at the Russian experience suggests that, that that really wasn't what was going on. There was a whole lot of other things going on at the same time. Uh, revenue from other taxes was also doing pretty well. There were other developments going on. So that's a, a, an example of a widely cited example that, uh, again, may fall a little bit under the category of myth that, that, we, uh, that we talked about. So it is hard to find examples, very hard to find examples where tax cuts have actually paid for themselves. But um, maybe back to Joel. Hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, I think the evidence is really overwhelming that, um, in general, tax cuts don't pay for themselves, that tax cuts reduce revenue, which is not to say that tax cuts could not stimulate economic activity uh, such that some of the the tax base responds positively to offset what would otherwise be a bigger 
revenue loss. So both of those are true. And you mentioned uh, Doug Holtz Eakin saying that 30 to 50 cents per dollar of the revenue is the, is thereby made up when you try to tax the rich. Um, for a couple points about that. 30 to 50 cents is a long way from a dollar. So that means uh, tax cuts lose substantial revenue. Uh, whether it's 30 cents or 50 cents in the dollar depends on the specifics of the tax. I don't, I don't find 30 cents on the dollar to be outrageously high. There, are, there is certainly a lot of evidence that people will change their behavior when taxes change, and that change, those changes in behavior will offset what otherwise the revenue loss would be. But it is pie in the sky to think and to expect that tax cuts will end up resulting in more revenue for the government. So how do you feel about corporate income tax? Is that just a pass-through? Should corporations pay, as you point out, uh, these mantras, uh, their fair share? Um, How do you feel about corporate uh, income tax? Well, let me just uh, say something quickly, and I think Mick will have... um, more to say, but uh, it relates to incidents. And when thinking about the uh, corporate tax, whether we should have one, how it should be structured, we should always try to think of how it affects people, the owners of the corporation, the people who work for the corporation, the customers of the corporation. To, to say that the, a corporation bears the burden of a tax is really vacuous and isn't getting us uh, to the answers to the questions that we want to know. My own view is that there is a role for a well-designed corporate tax in the modern economy, but we should think of it, always be looking through the corporation to the owners, to the customers, um, and to the employees, and understand how a corporation tax will affect them. And in today's world, in thinking about the corporation tax, we have to take very seriously the fact that uh, multinational corporations of America are in competition with multinational corporations from all over the world, and um, we have to understand how the U.S. tax code uh, will affect uh, those results. We see it today in the discussions among countries about a global uh, minimum tax and the agreements that countries now have to exchange information uh, about their own citizens' accounts in other countries. So, um, yeah. Uh, did you want to say something, Mick? Well, no, but I just wanted to say, I think uh, I think Joel has it spot on. I, I guess the only somewhat nerdy point to, to one has to make is that, I think as Joel hinted, the, the, the details of how the corporate tax is designed kind of really matter for where we think the, the real incidence, the real burden of the tax will fall. And if you bear with me for a moment, so, for example, economists often think in terms of what what we call rents, not in the kind of sense of, you know, rent for a a flat or an apartment or whatever, but rents in the sense for an economist means payments that somebody gets in excess of the minimum they require to do it. So it's kind of excess profits. It's it's more than you need to to earn to undertake something. And those are in many ways um, an ideal tax base because um, we're simply taking some of this excess away. People will still undertake the same activity by definition because they were earning more than they needed to to begin with. 
So if we can find a way of taxing rents, we can be pretty sure that's going to fall on the people who own whatever give rise to the rent, who may be better off people. So in some sense, part of the question that people would, would think about when thinking about corporate taxes, well, how do you design a corporate tax so that that is where it falls? It falls in large part on these rents. And that's a kind of continuing issue. It, but it, it kind of um, sadly does get a little bit nerdy. It means when we talk about the burden of the corporate tax, it really does depend on how the corporate tax is, is designed in important ways. Well, one of the things that uh, you said in the book is that if corporate taxes are reduced, labor will gain. How would that happen? Well, that happens if, um, if, if by reducing the corporate tax rate, one gives rise to, to essentially more, more investment, and more investment we'd expect to make labor more productive and for wage rates to go up. Uh, as a consequence, uh, consequence of that, and conversely, the story, the argument would be that while well, some of the burden of the corporate tax may fall on, on labour, um, but again, that's the case. Going back to my earlier point, that's the case if the corporate tax has an impact on investment decisions. If it's a pure tax on rents, as I was describing, it wouldn't have that impact, and the burden would, for, of, a, of, a, of the benefit of a reduction in your example, would actually go to the to the people who own the uh, whatever gives rise to the underlying rents. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the past when, uh, and these are tax laws that have been in effect for corporations for a while, and they, of course, have parked money overseas, uh, profits that they have made, haven't paid much tax on it. And when they've been given uh, various tax forgiveness things, um, and they were, it was suggested by the government when the forgiveness was put forth that they use this money to invest in their businesses and therefore doing what you just said they should be doing. But instead, they bought back, they bought back their, their stock uh, so that there was less of it out there and that made the stock rise. Uh, they gave higher dividends to the stockholders and they gave big bonuses to their executives, but they didn't hire more people. In fact, in many cases, they laid them off. So uh, I, I don't understand how labor benefits when... Uh, corporations don't do what the law states they should be doing. Yeah, well, there are a couple different issues here. I think, Bob, you're referring to a, a tax episode several years ago when the there, there was a change that provided an incentive for American multinationals to bring back cash that had been in their foreign subsidiaries. Yes. And the, the evidence about that is, as you described, that the money came back, but there isn't a whole lot of evidence that the money was used to uh, increase investment and do the sorts of things you would expect that would uh, benefit their workers. But, so yes, I agree with that. But you can think of other changes to corporate tax that would uh, induce uh, corporations to invest more. And as Mick said, to the extent that that happens, ultimately, because it will increase the capital uh, capital stock, which generally makes workers more productive, which generally may, uh, causes wages to go up. Then, in that case, some of the one of the consequences of cutting corporate taxes would be that some of the benefit would go to workers. So it, it depends on the details. But with the COVID-19 pandemic, what we've seen is with labor being out for so long or reduced for so long, what many companies are doing are replacing those workers with robots of a sort. So 
again, how does labor benefit overall? Uh, should corporations uh, get these benefits uh, uh, of robots or uh, higher dividends or uh, buying back their stock? Are they going to invest in more labor? And then, of course, here's the other thing. Big businesses have fought hard to prevent the increase in the federal minimum wage law, which is around 792. Now, somebody working 40 hours a week, that's barely enough to pay the rent. Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not here to argue that um, American corporations' objective is to increase the well-being of workers as opposed to maximize their share price. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that any tax change, or more generally, any policy, which um, induces businesses to invest more, ultimately will some of that benefit will go to workers because it will make them more productive. Now, you can think of counterexamples if it makes if it gives incentives for businesses only to buy robots, then it, the story doesn't work. But I think robots are actually a pretty small part of the story of, uh, of this. Um, so I, I think the overall uh, message and lesson still applies. More investment, more capital is good for workers. But whether any given tax policy or any given policy more generally does induce more investment is a difficult question and depends on the details of the policy we're talking about. Well, I I don't want to argue uh, only for labor, uh, but uh, I'm just talking about what I see and what the possibilities are. As we discussed before about the carbon tax, it's not likely to get passed anytime soon. And for laws written so that labor benefits, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either. So uh, that, that's why I was giving a little bit of pushback on this. Uh, yes, that may be the ideal situation, but let's look at the practicalities. Well, just to, just to chip in, I mean, I think your bottom line there, the practicalities is important. It really does depend on, the, on all these details of how the tax code is written in terms of how it treats investment, how it treats alternative types of financial financial transactions. Um, but in some sense, the corporate taxes, when we, whenever you talk about the corporate tax, you always come back to the question, why do we tax corporations at all? And because, as Joel says, you know, they're not people. We really care about what happens to people at the end of the day. And I think that does come back to some of these issues of, well, is it, is it the best way of taxing rent? Uh, are there other ways we could tax rents better? And even looking forward, as we do at the end of the book, to, you know, with we look at um, where we think the tax system might be going, you could argue that eventually we will have a corporate tax that's really just levied at the level of the individual shareholder that really becomes a tax on perhaps something like rents accruing to individual shareholders. So I think the corporate tax, um, it, we haven't come to the end of history yet for the corporate tax, but, um, but detail matters. And um, some of the possibilities of what we may be able to do in taxing corporate corporations may also be changing in the, in the not-too-distant future. As we've seen in other areas of taxation, with, with technology having some transformational impacts. Well, um, let, let me ask this question. So, uh, you're economists, and right now we see in many areas of the country a scarcity of workers. Um, is it because of the extra unemployment payment? Is it the low wages in those industries? Uh, is it the uh, elasticity or inelasticity of labor in those parts of the country or in those industries. Is, do you have any ideas on this? And uh, I'm not trying to be, um, uh, what would the word be? 
uh, I'm not trying to create a problem. I just, these are questions I want to have answers to because I don't know. Well, where I live, um, when I uh, drive down a, a commercial street, it seems like every single business has got a sign out saying we're hiring every single one. So this is a reality that is clear not only in the national income statistics, but just uh, uh, a half a mile from my house. Um, I think part of it is that we're still coming out, we're still in the transition phase from a very unusual, uh, very severe uh, recession. And it's going to take a while for the economy to get back to a new um, equilibrium where uh, people are working in jobs that they like and they uh, feel adequately compensated for. That's going to take a while. I think uh, part of the issue is the generosity of the um, unemployment compensation that's been offered. I think it was absolutely important uh, during uh, the past year to provide assistance to people who were laid off for no uh, fault of their own. Uh, but, you know, now um, there are undoubtedly people who are weighing very generous unemployment benefits against the benefits they could get for going back uh, to work. And when those benefits become less uh, generous, I imagine that will make some difference in um, how many people go back to work, although it's really hard for me to say how much difference. Well, in those 16 or so states where the governors have stopped that, they haven't seen an increase in employment uh, that's measurable. So how is that explained? Well, if that uh, I haven't studied those numbers as you uh, have, but um, that's just the kind of thing that economists uh, will be looking at to understand the answer to this question. How important were the unemployment benefits in the uh, path back to full employment? Uh, we'll see. If, if we don't see any difference uh, bet uh, between the areas that have different levels of uh, generosity of unemployment benefits, that's one piece of evidence that that wasn't a big, a big part of the issue. Uh, California has a pretty high um, a minimum wage right now. It's $14 an hour, and in January, it tops out at uh, $15 an hour. And this was a law that was passed several years ago, uh, increasing it by a dollar uh, an hour each of uh, five years going forward. California uh, is one of the fastest-growing economies in the country. Uh, so what do you think is going on here? Well, uh, you're, the, this uh, kind of question you're asking, Bob, is what makes doing economics uh, hard uh, <laughs> uh, but important. Uh, it's just not compelling to look at one aspect of a state's economic policy or environment and compare it to their, uh, their recent economic performance. There are so many things about California that could affect their growth rate, um, and the minimum wage being one of them. And to just pick out one and say, oh, we, California has this policy, but look how well they're doing. That's just not a compelling argument that this was a causal effect. It's uh, we also have high taxes. There you go. But yet the growth keeps on going. So uh, I don't know. Um, one of the things uh, you had near the end of the book, and we're getting close to the end of our time. Uh, well, 
we won't worry about the Vesti brothers because there's not enough time to go into that. Um, oh, one of the things I did want to say <laughs> is that I, I mentioned it in the opening, is that in 1459, the merchants of Brasov, uh, now in Romania, refused to hand over their taxes that they owed to the Prince of Wallachia. This, it turned out, was a bad decision because that prince was to be known as Vlad the Impaler. And sure enough, Vlad attacked and torched the town, impaling many of its inhabitants. No problem collecting after that. Uh, that was a, a pretty interesting thing, and I thought I just wanted to you know, ease uh, the atmosphere a bit. Uh, <laughs> well, certainly... Um princes and rulers have been pretty uh, inventive in finding ways to discourage tax evasion. Another example we give is from India, where one of the punishments um, during the Mughal period, I think, was to have um, cats put down your leather trousers. <laughs> so you had to wear leather trousers and have cats put down them. So that was kind of an um, unusual punishment. Well, one of the, uh, I think it was the last paragraph in your book, how future governments use the unimaginably abundant information available to them in shaping their tax systems will say a lot about how they will use their powers of coercion more generally. In navigating the opportunities and sensitivities in this area, there will be plenty of scope for future, uh, let's see, future, I'm trying to read my handwriting because I wasn't able to, to type this in. Uh, future follies and much need for wisdom. And you point out that if you could develop a tax system from scratch today, it would be a lot different than the mixture of things uh, usually governed by special interests to create the tax system we have. Those are your words. Well, yeah, I'm sure um, we're going to be proved uh, <clears throat> very prophetic. Um, <laughs> Maybe I can launch into, launch into that one. Yeah, I think um, it's certainly true that um, throughout the history of taxation, technology has played a, a very big role. And we sort of um, go through some examples, again, back to, to ancient China of some, some very uh, in fact, beautiful objects that we illustrate that have been used to help tax administration. But I think now, with, um, in all kinds of ways, we are going through a, a, a bit of a revolution in terms of what can be achieved in terms of tax administration, given the huge amount of information that uh, can now be made available about ourselves, about our habits, about our genetic makeup. Uh, all these things are potentially knowable, potentially relevant for our, for our tax, how you might want to shape a tax system. And it's kind of interesting, I think, that in the, one of the constants in the history of taxation has been a hesitation on people to give up privacy, to have governments know too much about them. A lot of the early opposition to the income tax was really seeing it as a kind of invasion of privacy. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, when apparently we're in, many of us are willing to give all kinds of information to um, the private companies we deal with, maybe a bit more reluctant to give it to government. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of the potential of what governments can do, which, um, which I know Joel has written about. So I'm sure we'll want to add on that one. Yeah, it, um, as uh, many folks know, if you compare the U.S. to other uh, developed countries, our tax burdens are on average quite a bit lower. And it's also true that the U.S. tax system takes less advantage on average of uh, 
the information and technology capabilities that governments have. Let me give one example, which is in many other countries that have income taxes, one need not file a tax return. What happens is uh, the government, um, from employers and from banks and other institutions, collects the information needed for an income tax return, compiles it, and basically just sends an email to citizens uh, January or February and say, all right, here's the information we've got. We've put it all together, and this is what your tax return looks like. Um, just check it over, and if it's okay, just you know, click this box. And if it's not okay, um, make these corrections. That could make tax day a lot easier than it is in the U.S. now. It's, um, but the U.S. hasn't taken advantage of um, the tech information technology that's available to it. So I think how governments uh, do take end up taking a, a advantage of information technology and how much citizens resist uh, this or consider it an invasion of their privacy is going to be a key element to understanding how the tax system of 10, 20 years from now is going to be different from what it is today. Hmm. Well, I, I want to thank you both very much. That's Michael Keane and Joel Slemrod for being here on Politics, a Love Story and talking about their book, Rebellion, Rascals, and Revenue, Tax Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages. Uh, I really did enjoy the book. I think it's interesting, and I think that uh, a lot of people should read it. And if this were uh, a required reading for a course on taxation, it would be so much easier to get through because of the humor that you exhibit in here. And I find that very refreshing, and I want to thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having us, Bob. It was a lot of fun. It was. Yeah, it's been great. Yep. Thanks a lot. So be well and um, write more books. This has been Politics, a Love Story on KZYX. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Politics, a Love Story airs every first and third Friday at 9 a.m., alternating with Byline Mendocino. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.